Meditations with Zohar is sponsored by Cometeer, an exceptional new coffee company that blends the best of what is old with the best of what is new, using cutting-edge technology to preserve and deliver specialty coffee in its purest, most original form. Cometeer is the perfect metaphor for how tradition and modernity might elevate one another. Welcome to Meditations with Zohar, where I talk to today's most brilliant and thoughtful minds about philosophy, theology, art, and culture. Today, I'm joined by Noah Feldman, a law professor at Harvard, Bloomberg columnist, podcast host, far-ranging public intellectual, the author of numerous books, including most recently, The Broken Constitution, Lincoln, Slavery, and The Refounding of America. Noah, I'm very excited that you're working on a book about Jewish theology, and I'd love to hear more about what you're thinking there, what, what's animating you. I should say that I'm entering it with some trepidation. Um, this will be my 10th book and the first time that I've directly addressed Jewish topics at book length. I think probably all of my books have in some way been a sublimation or a transposition of Jewish themes and interests, inevitably. The book is a book that I'm setting out to write to address my own perplexity and maybe the perplexity of some other people about where Jewish thinking about belief and practice and us's and them's are right now today, how the big problems that are facing us are playing themselves out today in reference to what I think of as the big challenges to Jewish identity and thinking and practice in the contemporary world, which are really different than they were 100 years ago, or 200 years ago, or 1,000 years ago. Um, specifically, I think a lot of those challenges have to do with inclusion and equality, which are pressing concerns and issues. I'm also really interested in explaining how Israel has transformatively affected the way Jews of all different stripes, whether they're religious, not religious, different brands of religious faith, um, have thought about their Jewishness over the last 50 or 75 years, because I believe there's been a transformative effect. And last but not least, I'm interested in the idea of Jewish peoplehood and the question of what it means to be a Jew and who's in and who's out. And that leads to questions of what's the point of being a Jew and what's the value of it. So basically, I'm putting, I've divided the book into three parts. Part one is broadly speaking about God and the Jews and what Jews think about God and um, how they think about the, the religious challenges that they're facing right now. Part two is about Israel and how it's affected Judaism and Jewish thinking in recent years and how it's going to affect it going forward and the conflicts that it is creating for many, many different Jews in different ways. And the last part is about peoplehood. And my working title, which who knows if I'll have the nerve to actually carry it out, is Bad Jew, a perplexed guide to God, Israel, and the Jewish people. I love that. Well, there's a, uh, a famous saying from the Zohar, my namesake, that God, Torah, and Israel are one and the same. And I can't help but notice the elision, perhaps, of Torah in your triad. You have God, Israel, and the Jewish people. Um, in a sense, Israel and the Jewish people belong to the same category, which is peoplehood, one in the form, let's say, of sovereignty or, or statehood, and the other in a form of a diasporic, non-governmental uh, organization. What role does Torah play in your framework? In the first part of the book, where I'm 
talking broadly about how Jews today think about what one might call their religious faith, although it's not always clear that the word religious is the right word. In that section, I talk about Torah as the one of, not the only, but one of the primary mechanisms that Jews of many stripes use to encounter the divine. So I think of Torah as both the record of the divine guidance to the Jewish people and simultaneously as the co-created tradition of ongoing tradition and developing tradition of making meaning of how one should live in relation to God. And so, yes, I think one could certainly conflate Torah and God in that way at the, at the broadest level. But I think to read that section, there's some about God in the abstract, but there's probably a lot more about how different Jews interpret Torah and make sense of Torah tradition from very, very different perspectives. And as for the, uh, the, the Zoharic statement that you have in mind, which I think is very, very relevant here, I definitely think that all three, um, God, Torah, and the Jewish people are intertwined with each other, but I don't think they're exactly the same thing except in mystical terms. Sure. So the, your working title, uh, which has the God for the perplexed alluded to, but also this this more contemporary bad Jew phrase, uh, it's very you. It sort of takes Maimonides and this high culture approach to making sense of things that are difficult, but then it has this this sense of being a kind of outsider. So Maimonides is a kind of hero within even within orthodoxy, although he really pushed the envelope. How do you... I mean, you're not saying you're a bad Jew per se, but kind of how do you place yourself um, on the spectrum between this sort of Maimonides, I'm a guide, versus this ironic sort of modern self-presentation is like, I'm not really representing the tradition, but I'm sort of here to... What's going on with this phrase, bad Jew? Why, why self-consciously, you know, even, even entertain the possibility of coming out as, as bad? In the introduction to the book... I argue that there's actually no such thing as a bad Jew, that according to Jewish tradition, you could be a bad human being who is a Jew, but an Israelite, even if he has sinned, remains an Israelite. And in fact, it's kind of remarkable if you think through the classics of Jewish thought right up to the present, the idea that someone is a bad Jew is basically absent. You know, it's not a formulation that you would find in the Bible, that you would find in rabbinic material. It's just a kind of cultural thing that we say. And I think the reason for that is Jews in the real world are really good at telling each other that they're bad Jews. And I actually don't think that's so helpful or good. And you alluded to Moses Maimonides, who's this towering you know, figure in Jewish law and in Jewish philosophy. Some people said from Moses to Moses, because his name was Moses Maimonides, there arose no one like Moses. And I think that's plausible. And you know what? Moses Maimonides was condemned as a bad Jew by other Jews of his time. And one of his great works, The Guide for the Perplexed, was even burned and by other Jews, you know, and condemned. And Maimonides' work was the subject of repeated medieval controversies with people saying not that his Torah teachings weren't extraordinary, which they acknowledged as legal teachings, but that his philosophical work was dangerous or illegitimate. So I use that as an example of how there is no such thing as a bad Jew, but Jews keep on saying there is. And in a sense, the book is an extended argument for how 
there are no bad Jews. How anybody who is self-identifying as a Jew and is therefore striving with and struggling with God in some sense is in fact a full participant in Jewish life. And I include godless Jews in that, people who you know are self-consciously atheist, um, people who would identify as bagels and lox Jews. I've, I've got a very, very capacious conception. So I think, you know, the Maimonides part matters to me for sure, because I do think we need to ask ourselves, what are the big challenges to Jewish thought today? In the same way that Maimonides asked that question nearly a thousand years ago. But the issues that preoccupied him, you know, um, whether God can simultaneously have foreknowledge of particular events and we can have free will. You know, I love that topic. It's a fascinating topic. I don't think it's the thing that's preoccupying most people today when they struggle. And I would just add that another book that I have in mind is an 18th century, late 18th, early 19th century book called uh, Morene Vuchayazman, The Guide for the Perplexed of Today, um, which is a kind of updated consideration of what are the philosophical problems for Jews in the light of Kant and post-Kantian philosophy. And I'm trying to do something not as philosophically technical at all, but something that is brought up to date for the present. Amazing. So one of the through lines that I see between your work and Maimonides is that Maimonides is trying to legitimate Judaism in light of philosophical challenges that say that this is sort of uh, an embarrassment or an, out, uh, an outdated way of being in the world now that we have Aristotle, let's say. And in your work, whether it's uh, consulting to Facebook or whether it's consulting on the uh, drafting of the Iraqi constitution or whether it's in your legal uh, theorizing and your Bloomberg column, you a lot of your work centers on the question of legitimacy. Um, what are the what are what are the breaking and also your new book on Lincoln? What are the what are the points at which legitimacy breaks, and how do you ensure that legitimacy can be saved uh, at the breaking point, assuming that you want to save the endeavor? So, do you do you see this book as an attempt to legitimate something? Um, that I guess that's question one. Legitimate what, a, a category of Jew or a way of being Jewish that's under under threat of delegitimacy. And I guess just as a, a second question to that, how do you think legitimacy works in Judaism as different from legitimacy in other institutions? Um, or do you think that it's all the same, that legitimacy is sort of a universal problem and you just, whatever answers you get in one domain, you can just kind of transport to Judaism? When we talk about legitimacy in the case of politics or government or an institution, I think, we can split it into two kinds of legitimacy. There's legitimacy in the descriptive sense. Do most people who interact with this institution think it deserves to exist and deserves to be followed? And then there's normative legitimacy, which is the ought to legitimacy, which says, okay, are they right? You know, does this institution deserve to be obeyed or interacted with, or do we need a revolution to transform it? I think that way of thinking about legitimacy is helpful across lots of different domains. When we're thinking about Jewishness, I think when we talk about existing institutional Jewishness, synagogues, movements, practices, it is possible to ask those questions of legitimacy. You know, is this synagogue one worth going to? Are these beliefs beliefs worth holding? And also, descriptively, do most people who engage with those things actually consider them to be 
in some way legitimate. But one thing about Jewishness that isn't as susceptible to a legitimacy analysis is that people today in many places in the world where Jews live, perhaps not in Israel, it's a little more complicated, but people could just walk away from Jewishness if they choose to. They can just ignore it to some significant degree. And so if you can really ignore something, then its legitimacy descriptively isn't that significant. You know, because if enough people treat it as irrelevant, who cares if it's legitimate or not? It's just not, you know, it would be like asking, um, you know, is the new Spider-Man movie legitimate? You wouldn't ask that question because the question you'd ask is, are people going to go to it or not? Now, if people love it and they want to connect it to the uh, canon of Spider-Man, you know, going back to the earliest comics and they want to talk about it in its relationship to the other movies and the other parts of the franchise and the, the Marvel Comics universe and so forth. Now you could ask the question, is this a legitimate manifestation of, you know, these origins of the Spider-Man myth? Um, so I think first people have to care. Once they care, then those kinds of legitimacy questions can certainly come into existence. I will just add, though, in writing this book, I'm still in the depths of writing it right now, I haven't thought of legitimacy as the guiding question because I'm more interested in what are the different ways that Jews and non-Jews engage with what it means to be Jewish. And there are so many different ways. And actually my premise is that they're all legitimate. My premise is that they all deserve to be taken seriously as modes of engagement with Jewishness. And what's more, that there are lots of people engaging in each of these modes. So I haven't spent a lot of time arguing for the legitimacy of different movements within Judaism or different beliefs or practices, because I think they are legitimate descriptively. And to the extent I want to make the argument in the book that they are normatively legitimate, that they deserve to be taken seriously, I guess, you know, people who read the book will decide whether that's the case or not, but not everyone's going to agree. You know, I don't think that a um, Haredi uh, Jew, and Haredi is a term that is usually used for to translate the word ultra-Orthodox. I prefer actually traditionalist with a capital T uh, to define the whole group. I don't think that someone who has that set of identifications is suddenly gonna look at a progressive form of Judaism, say Reform Judaism or Reconstructionist Judaism and say, oh, it's legitimate. I don't expect that to happen. And my job is not to convince that person of that. But I do think that a reader who is open to the multitude of different ways of being Jewish might look at the book and say, yeah, those, those, have, those have value to them. Those have meaning to them. Who are the characters reading the book that you imagine sort of at the margin moving? Like, kind of walk me through the person who's reading the, the, the mindset of the person who's reading the book who thinks they're a bad Jew and is, and is now going to realize, you know what, I'm, I also belong and, and I also matter versus the person who sort of grows up literate and identifies as committed. What do you, what do you want that person to get from reading this in, in terms of how those kinds of people relate to one another? Thanks for asking that. My kids are in high school and you know, probably around the time that the book is ready to be published, assuming it ever is, they'll be heading off to college. And my ideal reader, and it's really useful when you write a book to have an ideal reader. Um, I used to write a lot of books with my grandmother in mind as an ideal reader, you know, very smart, um, didn't go to college till late in life, didn't know a lot, but if you told her anything, she could immediately get it. Um, but I'm thinking of this in opposite generational terms. So I'm thinking of someone who's just going off to college who's, you know, ready to read the challenging books that you get to read in college and who, you know, probably might have had a bar bat mitzvah. Um, you know, my kids certainly did, but whose experience of that um, was fine, but perhaps not life transformative and is about to encounter a lot of arguments 
probably mostly about the state of Israel in college, but in a subsidiary way about Jewishness. And is just trying to figure out what should I think about this? And how should it matter to me, if it should matter to me at all? And who has the option, and I think this is why the going away to college is relevant, has the option of just saying, I don't care about this. I'm not going to engage with it anymore. Um, and sometimes people like that will say ruefully about themselves to each other, oh, I'm such a bad Jew. And, you know, I don't think they mean it in a super serious way. What they just mean is I feel ambivalent or I haven't been engaged by Jewishness in a way that seems totally meaningful to me, or I'm not choosing to do that. And so I think that's my ideal reader, someone who's engaged that it doesn't have to be somebody in college, it could also be someone many years outside of college. Uh, but that's sort of whom I'm thinking of. On the other hand, there's a lot in this book that will be of real interest to people like me who are really interested in the content of Jewishness. And that's not only Jews. Uh, it's also people who know Jews, who encounter Jews, um, who are partnered with Jews romantically or otherwise, who might be partnered with Jews, um, or who are just interested in where Jewish thought is in relation to some of the other big religious traditions, including, I would add, um, the sort of new emerging plurality of Americans, which is people who describe themselves as spiritual in some way without identifying themselves actively with a specific religious tradition. I think that's also, for me, a target audience. A lot of Jews incline in that direction. Uh, these days and are sort of interested in finding out what are the resources that Jewishness has to offer. And I'm also targeting the book to them. A lot of people in other religious traditions will will use the phrase, you know, I'm a bad Muslim or I'm a bad Catholic as well. Do you think that those people are using the phrase correctly because uh, those religions are constituted in a different way than Judaism? Is there something unique about Jewish theology that leads to this conclusion that you can't be a bad Jew? Or is what you're saying about belonging in Judaism something that a, a non-Jew could read, a, a person struggling with their own tradition and and take solace in? You often hear the argument that Judaism is not just a creed, um, but also a family, or um, there's sort of some aspect to Judaism that's not based in belief that allows for slack <laughs> Uh, at the level of commitment, because you can't really, you can't opt out of being part of a family. And um, another argument that that's often put forward is that Judaism doesn't proselytize. So sort of in compensation for the fact that we're not going out trying to re act actively recruit Jews, we want to hold on to uh, the Jews that, that are born into this. Whereas other traditions that are universalistic, they, they are proselytizing and they don't really again, in, in this line of thinking, they're not interested in the person who, who doesn't believe because they're on to the next person who does believe. So do, do you think that there's something sui generis about your argument or is it kind of just a case study for a broader point you want to make about tradition and modernity? You know, having studied Islamic philosophy and Islamic thought for my graduate work and then subsequently um, in a bunch of different books, I've always tried to be cautious about telling people of another religious tradition how they should or shouldn't think about themselves. You know, I, I will say that it's true that there are strands of Islam and strands of Christianity that will tell you this is a faith. And unless you can recite the tenets of our faith, whether it's the Nicene Creed or the Shahada, the Declaration of Faith of Muslims, and do so in good faith, you know, you're not really a Krishna or a Muslim. 
But of course, that's not the whole story because these are faith traditions with billions of adherents. You know, so market tested, they're a lot more successful than Judaism if you were going to measure them by how many adherents they have. And of course, not all of those people feel full certain faith all the time. And also the identities of Christians across a wide range of different options and Muslims across a wide range vary a lot and practices vary a lot. So I don't want to definitively say that one could or couldn't find something useful in those traditions. I think one probably could. I think of um, my close friend, the late Shahab Ahmed's book, What is Islam?, um, which is a masterwork, a little bit more academic than my book hopes to be, but it offers a very complex definition of what is Islam and who is a Muslim that goes way beyond someone who says, you know, I believe there is no God but God and, and Muhammad is his prophet. So that's the, on the comparative side. That said, I don't think that Jewishness is the same as Christianity or Islam or Buddhism or other religious traditions for that matter. It does have distinctive features. So let me say what I think that distinctive feature most centrally is, and I hope that'll kind of answer the question. For me, the word um, that is most valuable in trying to make sense of what unifies different Jewish thought traditions and practices is the word Israel, not meaning the country, but in the sense that the book of Genesis gives it when it explains how Jacob gets the name Israel. And the name Israel translates the Hebrew word Israel, which probably means in context something like to strive with God or to struggle with God or to contend with God. And it's not that all Jewishness is struggle all the time. In fact, there are lots of strands of Jewishness that strive to enable you not to be in a state of constant struggle with every aspect of your Jewishness. But I do think that all modes of Jewishness that are recognizably so do involve an attempt, a constant attempt to engage with the divine, including denying the divine, by the way. I think atheism, atheistic Judaism is a very definitive form of exactly this form of struggling or contending with the divine. Um, but all of them involve this kind of struggling alongside God or struggling directly with God or struggling to make sense of what God's will is or struggling with one's capacity to accept the divine authority if you are someone who cares about that or rather struggling to understand how the divine morality should play out in our lives and in relation to our practices, which is another kind of striving. So I think that is very distinctively Jewish. Again, it's not that there isn't striving in other religious traditions too, but I wouldn't try to define those traditions in the same way that I try to define Jewish tradition this way. And that to me is distinctive. And it's part of the reason that I think there is no such thing as a bad Jew. If you're doing the striving and the struggling, including by walking away from it, because at that point in your life, that's what you need to do, you are engaged in this very distinctively Jewish framework of striving, of striving with God. And again, I include in that very much so a person who says, I'm sure there is no God, I'm a thoroughgoing atheist, but I still wanna be Jewish in some way. I mean, that's exactly a struggle with, with God, even if you think that that God isn't real. I'm very moved by that. And I certainly see how throughout uh, the Torah, you can find stories that emphasize uh, struggling with God, including also iconically Abraham's argument with God over the the fate of Sodom and Gomorrah. And yet um, this sort of skeptic in me hears this and, and wonders, well, if this is the whole point, you know, why didn't the Torah say it outright? Why didn't 
Moses in Deuteronomy <laughs> tell the people, you know, hey, everybody, um, just so you know, the point here is to, is really just to be authentic, to be engaged. Um, why, why does Proverbs not say the beginning of wisdom is uh, struggle with God? Why is it fear of God? Is there a, a Straussian reading that we just don't want to tell people this up front because that will kind of lower the standard? So we we set the bar at obedience, but sort of surreptitiously, we we know that people are going to fall short or or have their own individual relationship. Other than a kind of a gutic, midrashic play, how, how do you derive this worldview from the Torah itself? Well, first of all, midrash is a very good way to derive meaning from the Torah. But let's go back to your examples. Let's go back to Moses in Deuteronomy. What does Moses do in Deuteronomy? He retells to the children of Israel the entire story of what's gone on with them in the time that he's known them. And he doesn't just lay out the law. I mean, there is a law part of Deuteronomy, although Edan Dershowitz in his new, uh, new theory of V thinks that the law is later, but we'll, we'll leave that to one side for today. Um, so the law is in Deuteronomy as we have Deuteronomy, but that's not all it is. Moses spends a lot of time telling the story. And what's it a story of? It's a story of the children of Israel's utter inability to obey this law. You know, their constant challenges, their complaints, um, the difficulties that they face, God's frustration with them when they refuse his authority. God tells them to go into the land. They say, no, we're scared. We're not able to. God is angry at them. He makes them wander in the desert. And all of this is intertwined with the law as it's laid down. So my first response to your question is, it is explicit. You know, you don't need Leo Strauss or an esoteric reading to see that the book of Deuteronomy is a story of the people of Israel's struggle with divine authority. Um, I would say the same, by the way, about Proverbs or, you know, about Ecclesiastes, these kind of wisdom books that exist in, in the Bible and which were canonized by the rabbis and which are in many ways books that have almost nothing to say about God. I mean, saying up front, you know, the, the, the first part of wisdom is, uh, you know, is to fear God is some editorial attempt, maybe it's from the original author, to tell you that the entire 30 odd chapters of Proverbs that are coming or, you know, dozen plus chapters of Ecclesiastes are okay. You can read these things. They're, they're okay. Even though you're not going to hear about God almost at all the rest of the time, you're going to hear, you know, a philosophical set of engagements with problems and you're going to hear depression. And in the book of Ecclesiastes, for example, you're going to hear the repeated statement that everything is pointless, which is not really the way that, you know, someone who's walking out of the door every morning saying, how can I obey God today would think. Um, these books are records themselves of struggle and taken in relation to the idea that you should just obey God. You know, you wouldn't need these books at all. These are books that are precisely about the nature of struggling. And that's their inclusion in the canon is a sign that even the rabbis were willing to treat these, these books as capturing something fundamental about about Jewish tradition. So I don't actually think that it's missing. Now, the one thing I do want to say in response to your question, though, Zohar, is what about people whose Judaism really is, like a lot of traditionalists, unquestioning in the acceptance of the authority of God? And my answer is that they're also engaged in a, a struggle or a, or a striving with God, but in different ways. The first instance is that they're striving to accept the yoke of heaven. Even people who understand fully that Judaism is about authority, and for them it is, still recognize that it's hard for humans to accept God's authority and that we struggle with it. And second, there's the struggle to understand what God wants. 
And that's the struggle of Torah. You know, that's the struggle of the human attempt to make sense of this divine tradition. And again, even if you are, you know, a deeply traditionalist Jew who believes that the entire oral Torah was prefigured at Sinai, you still get up every morning, go to the study hall, and spend most of your time in contentious arguing about what the law is. And so I think of that as struggling alongside God. You know, it's a struggle to understand what God wants. God is out there. I accept God's authority if this is my way of seeing the world. But I'm striving alongside God to figure out what God wants me to do. And if it were all solved and settled, then it wouldn't make any sense to spend the entirety of your life in Torah study. And, you know, the Bible says you're supposed to study the Torah day and night. So there must be there must be a reason for that, according to that approach. Another way of maybe asking the question is, to what extent is struggle just an inevitable thing? And to what extent is struggle actually a virtue that we should self-consciously cultivate or aspire to? To what extent is struggle a, a consolation story? Listen, it's hard, but don't worry, everybody struggles. Versus, you want to know what makes for the best possible servant of God or of tradition or morality, however you want to kind of tell the story. It's the person who's most vexed. Are, are you going for the floor model or the, or the ceiling model with that? Think of the basic presentation of classical Jewish thought, including parts of the Bible, according to which, you know, God has given these teachings um, in the form of the Torah, and we as humans are obligated to, to follow them. I don't think you'd have to engage that from the standpoint of struggle if you didn't want to. You know, you could say, okay, God has spoken. I'm going to follow what it, what it says here. And I'm not going to spend all my time worrying about aspects of definition. I'm reminded of um, there was an academic conference that I was involved in, in putting on at, at Harvard Law School. And we were talking in the conference at the presentation about the nature of argument. And a, a yeshiva student who was a student at Harvard Law School from a yeshiva background said, well, wait a minute. This kind of interpretive struggle that we characterize as Talmudic is inevitable. Because, and then he gave the following example, which, as he probably knew, is taken from a long tradition of, of Jewish polemical thought. He said, you know, the Bible tells you to take the lulav and the, other, uh, and the other species on the holiday of Sukkot. And we wouldn't know how to do that because we wouldn't know how big the lulav should be, how long it should be, what its characteristics are. So inevitably, we have to engage in this. And Moshe Halbertal, who's a brilliant and important Jewish philosopher and thinker and, and scholar, you know, responded by saying, you know, you say that, but it's not necessarily true. Um, and I went over to the student afterwards and I said, you know, every year on Palm Sunday in every Catholic church in the world, palm fronds that look suspiciously like a lulav, because they are the same exact thing, are used as part of the ritual. And no one, to my knowledge, in the history of the Catholic church has ever once asked the question, well, how big should they be? What if the central pieces of the palm frond fall apart? You know, I mean, you can use a palm frond as part of a liturgical worship and never ask these questions. So is it a necessary feature that one must struggle? No, it isn't. Is it a characteristic feature of how Jews have been engaging with these questions as long as we have a record of Jews and how at least some Israelites struggle with these questions even before they call themselves Jews? Yeah, it, it, really, it really is. And so I think it's um, characteristic and distinctive and meaning given. I don't think it's necessary. 
And what's more, if you're a, let's say you're a mystic, a Jewish mystic, and for you, the, the metaphor of striving or struggling is not actually of difficulty, but it's of trying as hard as you can to achieve mystical union with God, right? I mean, for a mystic, the story of Jacob wrestling with the, the text calls him a man, but he appears also in the book of Hosea to be an angel. And the text itself says that he is Elohim. So he's either gods or he's a God or he's the God. Um, if you're a mystic, the meaning of this passage is that the people of Israel or the Jew is struggling not in a difficult way, but in a joinder way. The struggle of Jacob and the, this, this being, this angelic being from a mystical standpoint is, is unio mystica, it's, it's mystical union. So it's not a, doesn't have to be a miserable struggle. It doesn't have to be a striving of pain. It doesn't have to even be a striving of questioning God, but it can never, nevertheless have the feature of this kind of engagement. And so I'm trying to define striving in a, in a broad way and not to say, yeah, the, the best striving is the striving where you wake up every morning and you're not sure why you're doing it at all. Um, that's a perfectly okay form of striving, but it's not the only form. And I don't think it's the best form. And it's also not the recipe for feeling, feeling good every day. But striving is nevertheless, even for the mystic, different than being a Buddhist. It is different than being able to put it aside altogether. It's different than transcendence that is accomplished by walking away or by understanding a separation from, uh, from the world. It's distinctive in those, in those ways. Meditations with Zohar is sponsored by Kamatir, my favorite coffee, not just for its exceptional taste, but for its unique aesthetic. Kamatir comes straight to your door as ice cubes, which you can then melt in hot water and have immediately as a hot cup of coffee. It tastes even fresher than if a cup were made for you at your local coffee shop. I highly recommend getting a box. Use the link kamatir.com slash Zohar to get $20 off your first order. One of the ways that I relate to your body of work is that you're a very principled person who has a strong take on things, but you're distinctive, and maybe this is because of your Jewish lineage, or maybe it's because of your le legal training, in the sort of perspective taking that you deploy to see how something might look from the vantage point of someone who doesn't share your worldview, doesn't share, share your values, and to show that at a meta level, what matters is that that person has integrity more than it matters kind of what outcome they come to. So their outcome could be completely different than yours, but you can respect the method by which they got there. I think you've used a distinction in your language between, let's say, vis-a-vis uh, -vis the Supreme Court, partisanship. Supreme Court justices shouldn't be partisan, but they can and should be political, meaning a uh, political meaning that they, they can absolutely have a, a worldview on political theory and, and morality, but we shouldn't be able to predict where they're going to end up simply because of uh, what package of, of goods they want. Is that worldview something that you feel you got by virtue of Talmudic study or by culture? Or is, is that a kind of model of pluralism that you're wanting to ask for in the Jewish world? Is there, is there a kind of meta call for respect of, the, of multiple ways of doing Jewish as long as each stream does it with a kind of integrity? I love that question. And I have to say, I'm not sure I'd ever thought of it in exactly those terms before. And I think you're right. I think 
for me, the model ultimately is the Talmudic model of people in good faith working on a common project of trying to understand what the law is. And ultimately, that means what God wants. Although, you know, God may not come up very much in the course of the conversation. That's one of the things that always surprises people who don't do Talmud about when they see Talmud done is that you could do it your whole life and, you know, barely ever talk about God, um, even though you believe that the activity that you're doing is in a fulfillment of, of a divine wish. Um, so you're engaged in a common activity. And once you're in that common activity, all you do is disagree. Like from morning to night, from the crack of dawn till the latest midnight hour, all you do is disagree and sometimes harshly. And then you give a lot of reasons for why you're right and the other person is wrong. And yet in the back of all of your minds, even as you're shouting and yelling sometimes, you know that the other person is also in good faith trying to get the right answers. And you, you're sure you're right about whatever it is that you're working on. Without that certainty, it'd be hard to motivate to, to get so engaged in it. It's not a game. You're trying to be right. And you believe you're right. And you're also able to say the other person thinks that she's right or that he's right or that they're right. And they're just as capable of making a good judgment as you are. And I think that does generate or ought to generate a kind of respect for people who reach different conclusions. Now, I don't want to be naive. You have to believe that the other person is engaged in the same game you're engaged in. If they have different premises and their uh, ways of proceeding are so radically different and they use different steps in the game, at some point you'll say, well, hey, you know, we're not playing the same sport anymore, right? I mean, if I think we're playing basketball and you think we're playing hockey, it can be really difficult to turn it into a productive engagement. So I don't have the view which I think of as sort of sort of utopian, that everyone together all of the time will end up in mutual respect. And there are also times when somebody else's views are so wrong that it would be a mistake to be respectful of those views. You know, there are some things that people do in the real world or beliefs that people have in the real world that, you know, I'm not a radical relativist that are that are actually bad. And then we should be able to have the strength to, to say so. But if we're able to see that that person is acting in good faith and we believe that we're engaged in, broadly speaking, a common enterprise, I think we do really well as people and as Jews, if we want to think of it that way, um, when we are able to generate respect for other people's other people's points of view. But I want to leave room also for the people who, who say, yeah, no, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think you're doing it right. You know, your point of view is legitimate. I, I have some, some vestigial feeling against the kind of radical pluralism that says every possible viewpoint is just as good as every viewpoint. And if you don't think that, then somehow your views are not good. How would you habituate people to engage in arguments in good faith and what do you say to kind of, you, you mentioned writing a book for today's youth. Like, what do you say to people in a climate that seems to be more partisan and more moralistic than ever um, to get them to see the value of respect, respect of some meta-political or meta-moral as aspect in a time when people so, um, so quickly want to choose a side that's based on winning against the enemy rather than f making sure that we, we share a common game? I have two things that I usually try to, to argue. And one is pragmatic instrumental and the other one is principled. So let me start with the, the pragmatic instrumental one. And that is, I try to remind folks 
that it's almost impossible to win an argument with somebody in the sense of convincing them to share your views by denouncing them as immoral. It, like, it feels really good to say to the other side, well, you're immoral. You know, your view is outrageous. You can't say that. You know, it feels great. It feels very validating um, and it feels very satisfying because you're acting in accordance with your own conscience. And that's, that's a great feeling. It never convinces the other person. So if you think that you are going to, in the long run, belong to some kind of a community with that other person, they're in the same classroom that you're in, or um, they live in the same country that you're in, and that country is a democracy rather than a totalitarian dictatorship. So all of the people have to have something in common in order to argue about how we should proceed as a country. Then practically, pragmatically, instrumentally, you need to be able to try to be respectful of at least the integrity of the other person's efforts, even if you don't agree with their results, because you're never going to be able to communicate and get along, get along with them otherwise. And sometimes I think that does get people to sit up and say, huh, maybe there's something to that. That's the pragmatic argument. The principled argument is a bit harder, but it also begins with the idea that Usually, if we hold certain points of view, we hold them because we want our community or our whatever we define as our relevant world to act collectively in certain ways. And we mostly don't believe as a matter of principle that we should coerce everybody we don't like to do what we want. Sometimes I guess we do think that, but mostly we think that it'd be better, ideally, if the other people would agree with us. And here, the moral argument is that if you really treat other people as humans, agents capable of making their own judgments, it's better morally to recognize them as effortfully engaged in trying to do the right thing so that you can engage them as humans bearing dignity. You know, if I just say to you, you're awful, you're bad, your view is immoral, that's not necessarily treating you as a moral agent capable of making your own moral judgment. Um, for that, it's much better to say, I see you. This is sort of Kantian idea. I see you. I see you as a human. I see you as a human who is capable of reasoning. And I want to encourage you to reason in a way that's more similar to way, the way that I reason. And it's not respectful of your human agency and your more moral capacities to do it by just telling you you're bad or your view is bad. It's only respectful of your moral capacity if I can try to uncover why you think what you think and walk with you through the reasoning to help you see it differently. Um, so those are the two things that I say. I don't seem to be having any grand effect on the, on the culture, but I, I think we move in trends and I, I, I have hopes that we're gonna move eventually in a trend of this kind of conversational engagement. Obviously, um, for the Supreme Court, which is more of an elite institution, good faith matters because perception of the legitimacy of the court matters a great deal, but other aspects of political life, such as voting for uh, the president, um, because of their, their being populist in nature, they, they seem to not require good faith in the, in the same degree. Would you say that it's always good to aspire to good faith argument, or is there actually a value or virtue, you know, a la Machiavelli, in being a bad faith actor in certain realms of political life. I don't think that being in bad faith 
um, is ever the right thing to do ethically. I do think there's some instrumental situations where, practically speaking, you might not be able to achieve certain things without misleading or misdirecting, and that's where you get into the Machiavellian way of thinking, right? I mean, I don't think that, for example, if you're showing up to fight a battle and you have a literal battle and you have your troops and the other side has its troops, that you're under some moral duty just to stand there in the middle and say, okay, come fight us like David and Goliath. You know, I mean, misdirection, falsehood, lying, those things are part of the undertaking of war. And they're permissible, I think, ethically in that circumstance, provided that the war is permissible. So I wouldn't go quite that far. That said, when it comes to a presidential election, you're right that all you're doing is casting your ballot. And it could be that there are other people who are just bad people and they're casting their ballot in a certain way because they're bad. And it would be silly to deny that there could be any such people, right? I mean, if someone's writing in Adolf Hitler as their ballot choice, you know, that's bad. And, you know, all the reason, all the moral reasoning and engagement in the world would not have, I think, reversed Nazism. Was, that was not, not going to happen. So it's not like we, I'm so naive as to believe that everybody is always in good faith. No, they are, people aren't. But, but if we want to live together in a country that actually functions, it can't be that if, you know, 50% of the people or 50% minus one of the people vote for somebody and 50% plus one vote for the other person, that the, we conclude that all of the people who voted for the person that we don't think should be elected were morally bad. I mean, you know, I, I just don't think you can run, you can't run a collective government that way. And you really aren't going to like it if the other side wins and they tell you that you're morally bad. So take a deep breath and try not to say, you know, Donald Trump is Adolf Hitler. That's not the case. You know, try to say, here are the moral reasons that I think you ought not to vote for Donald Trump. It's possible to vote for Donald Trump in bad faith, but it was also possible to vote for Joe Biden in bad faith. Try, if you can, to explore why someone might have voted in a way that you're convinced, convinced, that I'm convinced, was the morally wrong decision. Thank you for that. So just taking 10 steps backwards to God again, uh, since that's a kind of elephant in the room, as it were, um, do you have a personal theology uh, does what is the Noah Feldman view on God separate from the lots of different theologies are legitimate and um, this Jewish tradition thing is pretty in interesting and, and compelling? Well, what role does God play for you beyond just sort of the theoretical? Is is there an element of God that, you know, as Harold Bloom said about himself, it kind of keeps you up at night? So let me start by saying that when I described what I would call a theology of striving with God, that is very much my own experience. I'm being subjective about this uh, in the sense of describing my own experience. I can't remember a time in my life when I haven't been striving or struggling with the idea of God. And I think I've been on many, in many, many different places. I don't think I'm alone in this. In this. I've been in many different places along, I'm not even sure it's a spectrum, but you know, it's more like, it's more like a mountainside. And I've been on many, many different places in the mountainside. And I haven't always been climbing the mountain. Sometimes I've been going down the mountain. Sometimes I feel like I've been falling down the mountain. You know, um, sometimes I'm trying to bike up the mountain. There, there are many different you know, ways of engaging it. Um, and I think I've been in a lot of them. And I actually don't think I'm done finding ways to be there. I think that those are going to continue. But I do think that my life, as long as I can remember it, has involved 
struggling, striving, and contending um, with those things. Yes, there are also some moments when you're paused in the cleft of the rock, as it were, and I, you know, I mean the, you know, I mean the the Song of Songs reference, and so the the mystical meaning associated with that too, and you actually do feel some sense of peace, and safety, and protection. You know, if it were all a difficult struggle all the time, it would really feel, I think, to a certain degree, neurotic. Um, and you know, maybe it is. Maybe that's the model of neurosis. So there are moments when I have had the experience, however briefly, of, again, feeling protected or connected or safe uh, in some kind of relation to some divine. And then moments of utter despair uh, or of feeling as though it, what a preposterous thought to imagine there's anything out there that is or could be conceived of as God. You know, what a delusion um, and what a difficult and negative delusion. And ironically, there have also been times when I felt like there was no God and that doubled down on my commitment to Jewish practice. And there have been times when I felt very confident that there was God and that had the opposite effect on my normative <laughs> Jewish practice. Um, you know, and there are times that I felt close to other conceptions of God that are not the Jewish conception. So I guess that's not a systematic theology. That's a subjective account of, you know, a lifetime of relation and, and, and striving. And the striving, the account of striving with God as a theology is my attempt to begin to give a theological name to what are really experiences that I've had. And part of the reason that I want to be respectful of the different points of view that different people have reached on these kinds of questions is that I think I've been in almost all of them, you know, in, and in this, in this book that I'm doing, I'm trying to describe all of the views that I'm engaging with respect and love and acknowledgement of their nobility, because I can put myself into each and every one of these mindsets at different times. And I think if you do that sympathetically, you know, that's, that's valuable. You know, I had, I had a student, um, a Haredi student, you know, who didn't go to college and just studied in yeshiva for many, many years and came to Harvard Law School, say to me, you know, jocularly, but seriously. So, you know, I know you're not, you know, necessarily religiously observant or engaged in that regard, but if you were, you would really be, you would really be yeshivish, right? And, you know, I laughed because in a sense that was completely correct and, and insightful. Um, and in another sense, I hope that at any given moment, I can also put myself in the mindset of what I call progressive strands of Judaism, you know, roughly speaking, that's reform and reconstruction in some parts of the conservative movement, but also in what I call evolutionist Judaism, which includes some parts of modern orthodoxy and open orthodoxy and substantial parts of halachic egalitarianism, um, broadly speaking, the worldview that says, I accept the authority of the law and of the Torah, but I also understand that it evolves. And I believe that it's appropriate to self-consciously evolve the law in directions that accord with what I believe to be moral truths. You know, that's yet another broad trend. And I, at various times in my life, I have felt fully committed to all of these different, maybe never fully committed, but I have felt committed at different times of my life. And I can do it in space of a short period of time, put myself into the worldview and feel committed to the worldview of any of these folks, as well as of, you know, secular and atheist Jews who identify culturally, 
uh, with, with Jewishness or are struggling with what it means to be Jewish in the light of, of those aspects of culture? There's a Talmudic saying that after the destruction of the temple, the Shekhinah, the divine presence, went into exile with the people. And as you were sharing about your experiences in different parts of the mountain and different mountains, I, I couldn't help but feel that there was a kind of theology of accompaniment that the divine presence, albeit maybe in a more disguised form, not sort of the powerful force that liberates Israelites from Egypt, but more of this sort of gentle, subtle form of divinity is is kind of with you in, in these moments as a kind of witness. Is that a theological language that resonates for you, this idea of a sort of God, God as accompaniment rather than God as commander or God as kind of prime mover, you know, supreme master of the universe? I've had moments of feeling both. You know, I have had moments of feeling accompanied by God and I've had moments of feeling that that accompaniment was not desired by me. You know, that that accompaniment was very difficult. Um, often when people think about a theology of accompaniment, they imagine the accompaniment to be comforting. But it's not always. You know, God can be accompanying you and denouncing you for your sinfulness and the wrongfulness of your actions. Um, you know, God can be accompanying you when you're convinced that what you want more than anything is not to be with God, you know, to be away from God and to be free of this projection uh, that we sometimes think of God as, as being a projection of our, our guilt or of our limitations or of our restraints or of our neurotic beliefs that we are so special and unique, either individually or collectively. Um, so accompaniment, yes, sometimes, but, uh, but also abandonment. You know, I mean, I, I have not had the subjective experience of always feeling that God would, would be there in, in some form. Um, I've had the feeling of abandonment and I've had the feeling of having been alone, suddenly hearing a voice and saying, whoa, you know, where, where did that come from? Um, and so uh, the accompaniment, uh, I get it and it resonates for me, but it's not the only mode of engagement. And then the authoritative God of traditionalist, you know, Haredi Yeshivish Judaism is also something that I've experienced. Um, and I've experienced it both in the sense of, okay, this is the authoritative voice and one must obey. And also in the rebellious sense of here is the authoritative voice and I'm not going to obey this voice. And, you know, that is, that can take one of two forms that can classically either take the form of willful rebellion, or it can take the form of shame faced, self-conscious sinfulness. Um, and those are also parts of religious experience, you know, I mean, those are conceptions of sin, two different forms of sin that are, that are powerful and imaginatively powerful. And I haven't experienced a form of Jewishness that is Jewishness without sin, you know, I mean, and, but there is, there is such a form and I, you know, I think it would be wonderful to entirely occupy the progressive place where one never feels that one is sinning against God, provided that one is fulfilling the moral truths that progressive forms of Judaism see as the ultimate component of the divine. What are your thoughts on the relationship between Judaism and political liberalism? You know, obviously Judaism is much older um, and yet many Jews have sort of adopted to political liberalism almost without any real sense that once upon a time our tradition was far more heteronymous, far more recognizing of the group, the power of the group rather than individual rights. How should Jews authentically maintain a connection to tradition or to something distinct from political liberalism while also 
appreciating the goods that political liberalism has offered Jews historically? And, and is there a religious value, a, a, a Jewish theology that can underwrite a commitment to political liberalism separate from simply the, you know, re- the argument that religious liberty is good for us because we don't want to be, you know, inquisitioned? Is there a theology that, that or a view of a reading of the Torah that gets us to liberalism and doesn't just sort of hand it over to the Protestant Reformation? Well, let me, again, use this, these three rubrics of, of forms of Jewish thought and try to answer it quickly for each of those. So what I would call progressive Jewish thought does have the capacity to offer a theology compatible with political liberalism or even generative of political liberalism. And broadly speaking, that's the view that the true divine command, the, the true meaning of what the prophets had to teach is that there are eternal moral truths that issue in the performance of social justice, the creation of social justice in the world, and that the job of the Jew is to come to understand those moral truths to the extent that we're given. And then when, as we do, we can find those moral truths in our tradition, uh, in the Bible, certainly in a selective reading of the rabbinic material as well. And then we can put aside those aspects of the tradition that don't correspond to moral truth and embrace only those that do. And in so doing, we would be capturing the essence of what the God of truth and justice and universal love wants of us. If you take that view and you also believe that liberalism can be derived from some basic moral propositions of human equality, uh, of human freedom and agency, of autonomy, the idea of choosing law for oneself. So if you buy that, that sort of broadly speaking Kantian view of the capacity to derive political liberalism from these core propositions of what's moral, and you have that progressive Jewish theology, you're home free, right? Then you do have a Jewish theology that would generate um, political liberalism. Now, a sociologist or a historian or a person visiting from Mars you know, or, you know, I don't know, a a brilliant social theorist raised entirely in China who knew nothing of the Jews and discovered them only hearing this would say, well, isn't that a coincidence? You know, that Reform Judaism, you know, which is the progenitor of this progressivism, was born in 19th century Germany exactly as political liberalism was beginning to coalesce as one of the possible philosophical views. And then it's evolved in the United States. And so sure enough, these things come together. But so what? You know, I mean, I think that is the theology that is that would generate political liberalism. On the other extreme, if you're a traditionalist, you know, uh, and I take a traditionalist to be someone who accepts the authority of God and that God has definitively granted that authority to a group of identifiable people, the rabbis, who are authoritatively and in an authoritarian sense, the ultimate decision makers about what God's will is. Not necessarily because they're right, but because God delegated that authority to them. Um, and so that there you have it. Um, from that point of view, political liberalism is only useful or valuable accidentally, as you were saying. Um, it's only something worth following if it serves our interests. And sure enough, that's what most traditionalist rabbis say about engagement with a liberal state. Um, you know, you have to follow the laws of the state. So that's a good old Jewish tradition that's instrumental of self-protection. And if the state is liberal, you can be liberal and you should use the principles of liberalism to get as much as you can. Um, but remember that the fundamental structure is an authoritative one. God is the ultimate authority. The rabbis are the delegated authority. 
And that's the end of that. And when there are inconsistencies with liberalism, so be it. It's nothing to worry about. And I think traditionalist Jews are not worried about it. The people who ask the question that you, that you ask, you know, could we have a theology, are the people who, maybe not by coincidence, um, for you, Zohar, are in the middle, who are the, what I call evolutionists, who want to take seriously the idea of the religious tradition with its legal component and its ethical component as in some way authoritative. But also understand that we are human beings engage in this act of interpretation. And so our interpretations can go in different directions. And we as humans, therefore, interpreters of God's word and of the Jewish tradition are co-creators of our Jewishness alongside the divine. And if that's the case, then you have to engage in this very hard process of going back and forth between the tradition where you can see the liberal elements and also the profoundly illiberal elements. And on the other hand, one's moral judgments, where one might be a little skeptical about whether liberalism can be derived from absolute political philosophy. There are plenty of liberals who are just instrumentalist liberals and don't think that you can have a grand philosophy that would generate liberalism. And so if you're in the middle, this is a hard game to play, but it's very noble. It's a very rich game. And yes, I think one could be an evolutionist who accepts something like a theological picture that says that we ought to be autonomous human beings because we are created in God's image and who accepts liberalism, therefore, and also thinks that we have to very delicately interpret our tradition, midrashically sometimes and allegorically, to get us there. And my last point on that is just to be an evolutionist Jewish thinker, you have to embrace allegory. You can't do it without. Otherwise, you'll go insane very quickly. You have to be able to allegorize aspects of the tradition, whether they're um, part of the narrative of the Bible or whether they're part of the legal material uh, or agotic material, the midrashic material of the, of the rabbinic tradition. If you can't allegorize those things, you can't be an evolutionist. Maimonides is the great example of an evolutionist thinker. And, you know, in his presentation of, of his theology, it's allegory all the way down. You know, everything that is difficult to understand in the Torah, whether it's from the rabbis or from the Bible, has to be understood as an allegory. And then it comes into full coherence with the scientific worldview that he knew, which happens to have been an Aristotelian philosophical one. Um, but he's not allegorizing Aristotle. He's allegorizing the Bible and the Jewish tradition. And what he has going for him is the Bible is obviously in many ways allegorical. And the rabbinic tradition is also in many respects allegorical. So you're not making it up to, to accept that. This question is kind of a tough one. I, I struggle even articulating it, but it goes something like this. Um, Philo synthesized Torah and Platonism. He, he found a way to read Moses as a philosopher. Maimonides basically says that not only did Aristotle live the greatest life ever, but that sort of to the extent that Aristotle is right, the Torah can't contradict him. So he thereby fused uh, Aristotelianism and, and Judaism. And then in the modern period, we have Moses Mendelssohn kind of doing that with Kant. Maybe you could you could tell a story of Rav Soloveitchik trying to do that with you know the latest philosophers that he was encountering and sort of neo-Kantianism. But it seems like we need a kind of update. If if, if you accept the idea of Judaism being f needing to fuse with the the latest philosophical trends of the time, maybe I'm missing something here. But 
who are the thinkers of the past 50 to 100 years that need to be read more explicitly in relationship to Torah? Is anyone equipped to this task? And is the problem a sociological one that we're just not producing the kind of erudition needed to, to, to write these tomes? Um, is it that the, there's no audience that desires it? Or is it just that postmodernism is a kind of self-canceling endeavor? And so if you accept though you know you read Lyotard or Derrida or whatever you would have no interest in in this project so in contrast to fusing Kant and Torah there's just there's really nowhere to go since the 1970s or 1980s except maybe a hermeneutics of suspicion so let me take a, a big step backwards I accept your characterization of those great thinkers whom you mentioned but I don't think it's that Judaism needed or Jewish thought needed to be introduced into a complementary relationship to the philosophical views of those moments. It's that those thinkers, geniuses each in his own right, um, and I'm sure there are also women out there whom, who, whose works we aren't, weren't preserved that we, uh, who did similar work. It's that those geniuses needed in order to make sense of their thought world, to bring their own conception of Jewishness into some consistency of relationship with their conception of whatever the leading philosophical or scientific trends were of their time. And there have always been people who wanted to do that and felt a strong need to do that. The general public, including the general Jewish public, has never much cared. There's no indication that, you know, that in Alexandria, Philo was, you know, a wildly popular figure. Maimonides himself exercised his influence in Jewish history, his profound influence, entirely just about through his legal work. Um, not through his philosophical work. And of course, you know, I was a student of Isidore Tversky, so there are components of Maimonides' philosophy in his legal thinking, for sure. But the, there's no disputing that the great majority of Maimonides' legal accomplishment can be fully comprehended and worked with if you've never heard the word Aristotle ever. And sure enough, Maimonides' influence, you know, primarily runs through his code of law, and which had a direct influence on Joseph Caro and the formation of the Shulchan Aruch, the compendium of Jewish law that became the basis for modern Orthodox Judaism later. So the uh, point is, most people don't need this particular form of engagement. And there, by the way, are people doing it today? I mean, you mentioned postmodernism. I mean, lots of people, lots is the wrong word, but the tiny number of people who care about this read the works of, you know, Rav Shagar, um, you know, an Israeli uh, rabbi and philosopher who died not so, so long ago. Um, and whose work was very interested in exploring aspects of postmodernism, um, or to put it a little differently, can be characterized in ways that could bring it into relation to postmodernism. So I don't think, I think people are still doing that and can do that. And if people really care about those kinds of things, the small number of people who really care about that can and will. And the reason for this is that the Jewish tradition is so protean, so rich, so given to interpretation, creativity, and allegory, that it can, in many ways, be brought into relation to any philosophical tradition. Can it be made perfectly coherent with all principles of liberalism? No, not if the it entails a commitment to the authoritative or authoritarian strands of traditionalist law, but things are happening. I mean, and they're happening in real time. So let me just take a concrete example, Zohar, that I talk a little bit about in the book. So within circles that are sometimes called open orthodox, or that, if that's not the term of the moment, one might say liberal orthodox or egalitarian orthodox, but people who self-consciously are trained as rabbis um, and believe in divine authority and in the authority of the tradition. 
There has been, over the last 25 years, serious exploration of how the law could be open to validating gay partnerships. And real ex radical experimentation seen in almost any terms in a very short period of time. And I'm not now talking about people who say, well, you know, the Bible says homosexuality is a sin. Arguably, the Bible says that. And it's just wrong because it was written by humans and they misunderstood it. That would, I would call that the classic progressive view. I'm talking about people who are, you know, they feel they need to allegorize or in some way make sense of the, the biblical teaching about homosexuality and who also understand at a moral level the value of every human and the dignity of every human and at a divine level. And that's happening and it's happening in real time. And it can be philosophized. Not all the people who are doing that are always philosophizing it. But there's a philosophy in the backdrop for those who are interested in it and care about it. And it is happening and it is hard. Um, you know, I, I don't want to say that it's hard from the standpoint of straight moral intuition. From that standpoint, it's quite easy. Um, we share this moral intuition, I think. Um, even many people who would absolutely reject these experiments might share the moral intuition. Um, but what's hard is to reconcile for people who care the authoritative aspects of the tradition with the moral intuitions that we have. So people are doing it and people are struggling with it and it can be philosophically addressed. What I would say is that the real challenges, and this is one of the claims of, of my book, one of the real challenges today for all strands of Judaism is the core ideas of liberalism and romanticism, which by the way are somewhat in tension with each other, about human relationships and about human equality. You know, liberalism emphasizing equality and free choice and romanticism engaging and embracing the unchosen aspects of whom we love, what we think and how we express ourselves. And somehow, you know, our contemporary, broadly speaking, Western culture hasn't really fully reconciled the tensions between liberalism and romanticism. But we still walk through every day thinking the things we think. Um, which are reflections of both. And I think that hybrid liberal romantic conception um, is part of what postmodernism is struggling with. Um, postmodernism is noticing the gaps between liberalism and romanticism and pointing out their difficulties, which is why we have you know, deep debates in postmodernism about group identity versus individual identity, with group identity being something that's beloved of romanticism and individual identity of liberalism. And we're struggling over those things in our general culture. And I think those are the kinds of problems that Jewishness also, Jewish thought also needs to struggle with. As it happens, I don't think we have in postmodernism, in our current moment, an Aristotle. You know, I'm, I'm not sure we, we have it yet. I mean, with all, you know, respect to our contemporary theorists of postmodernism, not sure that any of them yet rise to the level where, you know, you'd expect a once in 500 year synthesis with Jewishness go, going the other way. So I, I think people who are interested in these questions should read everybody. But people who are interested in these questions already do read everybody the same way that you do, Zohar. And so you know, that's the job. You're doing the job. You know, you're struggling with the intellectual questions of our time, A, and then B, you're struggling with how I'm struggling with how Jewishness might interact with precisely those things. But you've got to do both. Let me conclude with one question that I, I wonder about. So Leo Strauss in Persecution and the Art of Writing 
describes the idea of philosophers as a class unto themselves. Basically, this idea that, of course, we can tell a historical story about Plato and Spinoza um, that, that portrays them as products of their time, but that's not what's interesting about them. What's interesting about them is that they kind of partake of an eternal conversation had by philosophers. And I, I find that very romantic and compelling, even though it's kind of empirically dubious. Um, I'd like to believe it. I'd like to believe that there is a kind of eternal conversation. And I think it kind of pairs with your idea of political but not partisan. The idea that people can, should be accountable to their sense of integrity um, more than they should be accountable to their desire to win in the short run. And I just, I guess I have a certain elite conception of that where I, d I don't know that every single person should do that or is cut out for it, but I think some people really should. And so I guess the way I'm asking the question is twofold. One, do you think of Judaism as a kind of eternal conversation as well? Is there a way to enter Judaism as an eternal conversation and to think about one's project as responding to people a thousand years before and a thousand years to come? Is, is there some value in having a, a percentage of Jewish leaders or Jewish students thinking about themselves in that way? You know, it's funny that you started with Strauss's account of the philosophers and then asked, you know, whether the Jews should do something similar. I have actually always believed that Strauss's account, which I also agree is very beautiful, was unconsciously or consciously influenced by Strauss's view of Jewish tradition. You know, I mean, what is Talmud study if not the experience of arguing about something that people argued about 2000 years ago or, you know, 1500 years ago or 1000 years ago or 500 years ago and treating them all as though they're in a constant simultaneous conversation. You know, I mean, sometimes when historians will, will, will say, as they always do, well, the fact that people are using the same vocabulary separated by 200 or 300 years shouldn't mislead you into thinking about that they're having the same debate. It's not really the same debate because the words have a different meaning in different contexts. That's a very powerful and important point. Strauss is speaking against it. And I always want to say to those historians, like, have you studied Talmud? Because, you know, sure, the concepts add some thickness or, or vary in different ways, but I'm pretty confident that a contemporary debate in a yeshiva, whether a progressive yeshiva or a traditionalist yeshiva, could be transposed back certainly to the Middle Ages. And there's no question that the rabbis would be like able to dive right in with no preparation or effort. And I think, take that back to the Talmud, I think the same is basically true. So I think Jews are already engaged in some forms of those kinds of debates, um, as are philosophers, sometimes talking past each other, um, but sometimes engaged in the same conversation. So yes, I think Jews should do that. And I think they do do that. And so do a lot of philosophers and under the right kinds of conditions and, and circumstances. And so is the conversation as among the different groups. In terms of the what you described as elitism, Zora, I, I see what you're saying, but I think you might be able to relieve yourself of the, of the charge of elitism by saying the following. To me, elitism, and Strauss was one of the people who thought this, because Strauss was an elitist, is the idea that if ordinary people engage in a certain kind of reasoning, it will be harmful to them and to the world. And I don't think that, and I don't think you think that. I think it's fine for anybody who wants to, to engage in this kind of eternal conversation about why we're here, what we're doing, and how we should do it well. At least right now in the world that we see, I don't think that there's great harm associated with people trying to do that. But not everybody wants to. And that's fine. And they don't have to. You know, I mean, to me, that's like, 
you know, it, something, an activity doesn't have to be exclusionarily elitist if only a few people want to do it. Chess is a great example, right? It's not that hard to learn the rules of chess. Any human being could learn the rules of chess in a couple of hours. And what's more, you know, you can play chess if you have an eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper and a pen, you can draw yourself a board. You know, maybe that's not the right shape. You'd better have a square piece of paper, but you need a square piece of paper and a pen. You can draw yourself a chessboard and you can use, you know, any object you can, you can use acorns for pieces and then you can play chess. So it's not difficult to get the basic access, but chess is incredibly, you know, a sport that if you want to get better and better and better and go deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper into it, you can, there's no one there to stop you. Um, is it elitist? Maybe, but I don't think it's exclusionarily elitist. So I think that's what the life of the mind is or should, should be like, you know, welcome if you want to take a crack at it. And if you don't, that's no problem. Like no, no, no harm, no foul. You know, no one's offended. If you think that this conversation is not very interesting, no problem. Don't, you know, no one's making you listen to it. Um, so, you know, that's sort of my updating of that, of that idea, but without the Straussian piece where we think, yes, yeah, certain people should just be told the noble lie and they should be kept out of this conversation because it will go very badly for them. That's, by the way, how I think about the Supreme Court, too. You know, there are people who say, well, you, how can you say that the Supreme Court is political because that's going to be harmful to people's faith in the rule of law? And my answer is, do you think people are idiots? I mean, everybody knows that the justices of the Supreme Court are appointed by a political process. And everybody knows that the question of whether the Constitution does or does not require the states to allow a right to abortion isn't written into the Constitution and therefore depends on your philosophy of interpreting the Constitution and therefore depends, depends on your view of political morality and therefore in some way depends on your politics. That said, I don't want people to walk around thinking that the Supreme Court justices are partisan hacks because if they were, they would have given the election to Donald Trump. You know, three of them were elected by Donald Trump, but not even one justice on the court was willing to vote in a way that even hinted that Trump had won the election in 2020 because he lost the election. If they were partisan, that's what they would have done. So I don't believe in a noble lie uh, approach. I believe in respecting people's intelligence, but also recognizing not everybody wants to get an advanced you know, degree in constitutional law, and that's fine. They, they can know the basics and talk about it to the extent they want to. And I think the same is true for philosophy and the same is true for religion. So you've got so many different interests and you've kind of realized your ambitions both as a scholar and as a person engaged in the world. Do you identify as a fox or a hedgehog? And um, maybe I'll bias you a little bit, um, whether or not you've thought of this, and just say, I actually, especially coming out of this conversation, I see you as a hedgehog. I think that your one big idea is pursue the truth no matter what. And um, of, that has taken you to different places and different cultures. But underneath is this sort of belief that we can handle the truth. And that is maybe a kind of anti-Straussian rejoinder that the, tr the truth belongs uh, to the open. It doesn't belong only to people who deserve it. You know, the distinction between Fox and Hedgehog, which Isaiah Berlin famously introduced, um, is one that, you know, everyone spends time who, who hears about it thinking, gee, am I a fox or a hedgehog? And what about my friends? And who's a fox and who's a hedgehog? And I always think about this about Berlin himself. If you'd asked Berlin in his lifetime, which are you? He would have said, I am a fox who desperately wishes I were a hedgehog. Now, at a distance, um, after his, his death and as his work has been assimilated and made sense, Berlin looks like a hedgehog in retrospect. I, in my life, feel like I am a fox who desperately wishes I were a hedgehog. 
And my greatest wish would be that someday, you know, I guess I didn't have to die because you said it just now. It's a very nice thing for you to say that, that, that I would be a hedgehog. That is certainly my aspiration. Um, it's not always my experience of myself, but yeah, that's what I would like to be. That, that's, that's what I would like it. You know, I would like it to say on my tombstone, this, he was a fox who wanted to be a hedgehog. And sure enough, there were some hedgehoggy things about him. So just to just to riff on that, if you want to kind of allegorize the Jacob tale that you began with, uh, what does it mean to wrestle with God and to prevail? Perhaps it means to experience oneself as a as a fox, but prevailing means that's kind of you're given a new name, Yisrael, this sort of hedgehog identity that that emerges through that striving. I love that. That's that's very deep. You know, it's funny I, in thinking about that part of and prevail, the word prevail. In, in working on this book, I, I have a, a reading of it. It's sort of interesting. It's the, the verb in, in Hebrew is yachol, um, to be able, which literally means to be able. And in other contexts, of course, um, it means to be able. In this context, the, the simple reading of the text is a certain kind of prevailing, because that verb can mean both to prevail and to be able. But if we're allegorizing it, to me, it's not that you could strive with God and prevail, because you're not going to be able to prevail over God, because you're a fallible human being. So to me, it's to strive with God and to be able. Uh, that is to be able to continue to try to strive and to be able to continue to live and engage with the world in that striving. So I think that would, you know, if that could get me to hedgehoghood, that would make me very, very, very happy. But I wouldn't consider that to be prevailing. Thank you so much for your insight and your time, Noah. Thank you, Zara, for a fascinating conversation. Meditations with Zohar is produced by Jack Pombrian, Zachary Davis, and me, Zohar Atkins. It is produced in partnership with Soul Shop and Lyceum Studios. You can learn more about the show by visiting my website, zoharatkins.com. And if you like what you've heard, you can subscribe to my newsletters. You can also help by rating and reviewing the show so more people can discover these conversations. You can get in touch with me through my site or find me on Twitter, where I'm at Zohar Atkins. Thank you for listening, and see you next time.